You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, ScoMo Diplomacy, our two grumpy strategists unpack the defence and foreign policy agenda of Australia's newest Prime Minister. Much ado about Huawei, the Chinese tech company gets banned from Australia's 5G network. And Maddie and Jackie explore the changing face of journalism and how it impacts press freedom. First up, let's hear from our two grumpy strategists, Michael and Marcus. So, Michael, exciting week in Canberra last week, and once the dust had settled, we had a new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Now, he has been Treasurer, so which means he would have been in the National Security Committee of Cabinet, so defence and security issues would not be totally new to him, but it hasn't really been at the core of his portfolio to date. So now he's got the top job. Do you anticipate any meaningful changes in the government's defence and security policy settings? Well, I think you're right about Scott Morrison as Treasurer, um, even though he will have been in those National Security Committee of Cabinet uh, discussions and decisions, he will have brought his Treasurer's perspective to it. You always do the job that you're in. So he will have brought an economic lens to things. Um, This will be new stepping up to be the Prime Minister. But I think before he became the Prime Minister, last week, we saw a really clear uh, direction for what his prime ministership will be. We had the big Huawei announcement. We did. So it came out right in the midst of all that leadership turmoil. I think it shows us the decision was probably made before that, probably even the week before that. But as acting Minister for Home Affairs, it was Scott Morrison who announced the effective banning of the two big Chinese telcos, Huawei and ZTE. And he clearly based that decision on national security grounds. So uh, if we're looking for clarity on the new prime minister and the Morrison government's China policy, I think he's sent a message that where uh, there's two-way benefit to the economics of the relationship, things like resources and services, uh, then he welcomes that, that relationship. But just like the Chinese leadership, where... Uh, core national security issues are involved and where Australians' national security is is involved, he will make decisions uh, on those grounds. Mm -hmm. So it it seems like even though there was some talk of a reset in relations with China, um, the government's been actually pretty consistent over, you know, the last year or so. Well, I think really it's now uh, clarity. There's clarity in government policy on China, and that really is uh, to welcome that that beneficial trade, $180 billion of two-way trade. And that's, uh, there's a lot of loose language, oh, we're dependent on China for this. Well, no, it's not a dependency, it's a two-way relationship. Uh, China's not doing us any favours by buying world-class resources and services like tourism and education at globally competitive prices. Um, this is no one doing anyone any favours. It's in both our interests. That'll continue, but on things like critical infrastructure, telecommunications being one, and I would say power distribution, things like gas and electricity grids, uh, where it's critical infrastructure, 
he said uh, national security comes first. Mm -hmm. Now, while our economic uh, relationship with China has, is very big, uh, a country with whom we may have a sort of underdeveloped economic relationship is Indonesia. And many commentators have said there's a lot of room for growth in all aspects of our relationship with Indonesia. And what we see is uh, the new Prime Minister's first overseas trip is off to Indonesia. So what do you think's going on there? Well, he's really stepped into the shoes of Malcolm Turnbull here uh, because Malcolm Turnbull was off to make that visit as part of a short regional trip. Uh, but Scott Morrison has very symbolically um, kept the Indonesian visit. So uh, he'll be seeing President Jokowi and uh, they expect to conclude the Australia-Indonesia Free Trade Agreement. Now, you're right. The Australia-Indonesia relationship is chronically underdeveloped given the importance that it should have to both of us. Um, but that free trade agreement, for example, has taken six years and it's really bogged down on very technical detail that strong leadership momentum uh, should and could have resolved. So the, the real um, test now is not just the visit by Scott Morrison but by what's the follow-through, where... Where are the substantive activities that happen uh, as a result of the Prime Minister's interest in Indonesia that develop what is a very un undeveloped economic and security relationship? Mm -hmm. So now I'm interested uh, in the other part of the ministry. So uh, we saw Maurice Payne move uh, into Julie Bishop's job as foreign minister. Uh, but uh, also then we had the, the domino effect. We had Christopher Pine. Uh, moved to the Minister for Defence's job, and the Minister for Trade, Steve Chobo, moved to Defence Industry. Now, what are some of the implications out of, out of those moves, Marcus? Yeah, I have to say I was uh, a bit taken by surprise with Maurice Payne moving to Foreign Affairs. I mean, you know, one of the kind of, um, I guess, uh, reputation, well, the reputation that Defence has is it tends to be the graveyard of ministers. So it's kind of interesting to see um, Maurice Payne, whether you call it a promotion or a sideways move, moving on to another uh, very important um, ministerial position. And so that's probably a sign that, you know, she's well regarded by her colleagues, particularly since she's a, a bit of a wet in the Liberal Party. So I guess more towards the progressive end of the Liberal Party. And the reshuffle was about uh, moving the party a little bit more to the Conservative uh, end, and she seems to have survived that and um, been rewarded. So, so probably a good move because she will have a lot of um, knowledge of of the people that she'll deal with as foreign minister because of those, you know, the two plus two defence and foreign minister meetings that she's participated in. Uh, probably a very logical move yeah, for her. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, being I think defence minister is one of the hardest jobs in the country because you've just got this constant flow of all kinds of matters constantly coming over your desk, ranging from grand strategy all the way down to um, you know really difficult issues like you know groundwater contamination around air force bases and uh, with lots of unhappy people fearing they've been poisoned. I think. Um, you know, Maurice Payne's happy place is more in, you know, where she's going to be now, where you can deal with grand strategy, mm. developing international relationships. And, you know, I think she'll be very good at that. The question now is the new Defence Minister uh, coming in, Christopher Pine. He's moving from Minister for Defence Industry, which is essentially a single issue portfolio into a very big, broad job. 
Do you um, think he realises what he's in for? You've just been talking about some of the demands that eat a defence minister's time. Will he be able to let go of the defence industry responsibilities? Well, he's going to have to, I think. Now, fortunately, he has a new Minister for Defence Industry to support him, who is former Minister for Trade. So, you know, I think that's a very clear indication of where government wants to take uh, its defence industry policy. It's still going to be a very high priority, you know, building things in Australia, building Australian defence industry capacity, selling them overseas still will be a very high priority. So what what is Minister Chobo left to do? Because uh, a lot of the big ticket uh, programs have been decided. What, what's distinctive that he can do with the well, defence industry? Well, that's interesting well. because the, the big news last week is the tender for Land 400 Phase 3 went out. So $15 billion project for 450 armoured vehicles on top of the $5 billion for another 200 that the government approved earlier this year. So that's kind of JSF scale of expenditure. It's, a, it's more money than JSF. It's sort mm. of flown under the radar a little, to use a radar analogy. Um, I don't think it's quite got the public discussion and scrutiny it has. I know you and I are both a little sceptical about should we be spending that much money locking in that investment in armoured vehicles. So what's the opportunity for Steve Chopper? Well, I think the opportunity is, uh, you know, Chief of Army recently put out a new concept, Accelerated Warfare, which talks about emergent technologies and, you know, sort of looking at things that Australian industry can do um, to adapt to the changing nature of warfare. And so I think, you know, what Minister... Chobo needs to really look at is not the default setting should not be do everything in Australia. The default setting should be where can Australian industry really make a difference? You know, what are the strengths of Australian industry? Where has it done really well in innovation? Where can it fill the gaps in the market that we can't go offshore? And what can we um, do here better? Well, all that sounds great, but if, if all the money is going to get spent on 450 large fighting vehicles, $15 billion, that's going to suck all the energy out of that. So that's probably got to be on his list. It is a huge opportunity cost. All right. Thanks, Marcus. And now over to Danielle and Tom from our cyber team. They're discussing the decision to ban Huawei from the Australian 5G network. Tom, how are you on this fine and cold, wintry Canberra day? Yeah, I'm great, Danielle. I'm I'm cold, by the way. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael and Marcus have already touched on the 5G decision earlier today, so we won't go over the same ground by discussing the details of Australia's Huawei ban or the horrendous and self-involved state of Australian politics at the moment, and we won't discuss how last week we witnessed Australia's eighth leadership spill in as many years. And, Tom, we definitely won't dwell on the fact that there is actually a Wikipedia page titled Leadership Spill that is dedicated solely to tracking Australian state and federal leadership spills. And I'll note on this page, which is very long and detailed, but because of the sheer number of spills that occur in Australia, someone has actually made the decision to only list notable spills. <laughs> if that isn't a sad indictment of Australian politics at the moment, I don't know what is. Uh, but let's place all of that political drama aside and you and I are going to take a step back from the details of the 5G decision and have a chat about the bigger picture in play here. And that is why in Australia and around the world are we afraid of Huawei? 
uh, or more appropriately, what is it about Chinese telecommunications tech and internet companies that seem to make us particularly uncomfortable when compared to, say, uh, telecommunications companies from Finland or even the US? So, Tom, I'll put this to you. What is it uh, that makes uh, some of these Chinese telcos unpalatable for Australia? So I am not much of a person for conspiracy theories, and I've always <laughs> been sceptical about the fears about Huawei because of it, it just sounded too much like a conspiracy theory to me. But the more I've learnt about the issue, the, the more worried I get. So it starts at the big picture for me of the way that China has a really close relationship between the state and enterprises. People have been concerned about companies being used by the Communist Party and the Chinese state to achieve state goals. Uh, so that's the first big picture thing. And you, you see this in the way that the Communist Party will do things like lock up people in Xinjiang because they think they're a problem, not because they've broken any law. So they're mm. acting in a way that they believe is in their state interest, but isn't backed up by any form of law and isn't just isn't right. So that's one big picture thing. And I've become more and more aware over time of the Communist Party behaving in that way. The second part is that China has a long history of cyber espionage. Mm. And over the last 20 years or so, they've hacked a lot of things. And they've also hacked a, a wide range of things. We in the West tend to think of government and military as, you know, air quotes, legitimate targets. But the Chinese have also hacked... Uh, for intellectual property theft and for commercial advantage in negotiations. And that makes it harder for us uh, to defend because we don't feel like it's the government's role to defend companies. Mm. So I might jump in there. What's yep. a legitimate target? So, for example, we've seen the ANU hack that's come up in the media where uh, there were leaks from security officials uh, to the media uh, that uh, essentially seemed desperate to get the information out there that Chinese cyber actors uh, had been in the ANU IT systems for about seven months uh, and that ANU had been unable uh, to clean up that mess uh, and were in fact still within the system apparently uh, when the media came out. So are universities legitimate targets? I don't know that there is such a thing as a legitimate target. <laughs> I think that states will hack what they think is fair game. Yeah. So Western states have had one standard, China, and, and other countries as well have, have had a different standard. So I don't actually think that there's a moral argument of some things being legitimate and some things not. I think it's, it's about national interest. So I don't think – I wouldn't say that China is bad or for doing this. I actually think it's in their tactical interest. Yeah. I think the problem is that that widespread and wide-ranging cyber espionage has actually eroded trust in mm. Chinese institutions. And yep. Huawei is part of the blowback from that, that long-term wide-ranging espionage. So do you agree? Do you, do you have the same concerns? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, th I think earlier this year I was I was like you, I was quite sceptical uh, and I think I've been on a bit of a journey this year looking, you know, spending a lot of time looking into the data uh, and speaking to people within and outside of government to get a sense of how the Australian government should go about making this decision. 
But the more that I looked into things like the 2017 National Intelligence Law uh, that China put out, I think, in the second half of last year, so it's a fairly new law, reading through the different articles, and Article 7 is the one that says that individuals and organisations must participate in intelligence activities, and, you know, I won't read out that article. But the more I sort of thought, well, hang on, there is a direction, I think, that the Communist Party uh, has been going in that makes it really difficult, I think, for countries like Australia to say, okay, well, we're noticing this, not even a shift in direction, but it's it's almost like a bit of a snowball, uh, go, you know, going in, in, in a direction that makes us uncomfortable on some fronts. Yeah, so for me, the national intelligence law really crystallised those concerns that I had. And also, the more you hear about the way China is implementing surveillance in a kind of coercive way mm. to try and encourage their population to behave the way that you want. It's very clear that they have an attitude that people exist to serve the party rather than the Australian conception that it's about individuals and the the government exists to help individuals lead lead flourishing lives. Mm. That makes me really worry. And so I think that there's a number of companies that you worry about putting in national infrastructure, in critical national infrastructure for that reason. So on the intelligence law, let's dig into that a little bit more. How would that work in reality if an intelligence service from any country, I might add, wants to gain information uh, from one of their companies working around the world? Is it a knock on the door, let's sit down with their senior executive and ask permission? Or is it a, I can see this, this gap here and I'm going to enter in and see what information I can gain. I mean, how, how should we assume that things like that actually work in reality? I assume that there's a spectrum of possibilities, right? So at one end, you've got an intelligence service actually leaning on an individual and perhaps they're a key individual in, I don't know, engineering or maybe they're in a, a kind of monitoring function and saying, we need you to do this for us. Um, at another level, it might be, could we have source code? for a particular product so that we Mm. can evaluate it for vulnerabilities. And then at the very top level, it might be, we need you to put a certain feature in. Those are the sort of spectrum of possibilities. I guess one of the questions people have raised is, what's the difference between China and, say, US companies where we, we might buy stuff from them? And my answer to that is that we actually have some transparency around how US companies have pushed back against intelligence and law enforcement. So there's the Apple versus FBI case where there was a locked iPhone that was involved in a a terrorist event. And the FBI tried to force Apple to unlock the phone and Apple fought back. So we actually have public evidence that companies in the States don't do necessarily what their law enforcement or intelligence agencies want within the rule of law. Yeah, There's a number of other examples there. So I don't have any equivalent Chinese examples that I can point to. Yeah, and I guess that comes down to the sort of lack of transparency uh, surrounding some of these companies. So another point, I guess, I mean, and, and this is where, I mean, in a way, we're sort of leading to this quite naturally. What do you think this means for the future of some of these companies? Because we can see similar discussions going on in Japan uh, this week, and it's You know, there was a report over the weekend uh, that said that the Japanese government was considering a similar ban on, I think, the public procurement of hardware that would involve Huawei. Uh, Discussions seem to be happening at the very senior levels in Canada. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gets asked about this fairly regularly. So there is this sort of global 
pushback. So what do you, I mean, what can these companies do? On the one hand, they have this intelligence law, which I think is such bad news for them, and it really will hamper their international expansion. Uh, You know, people can argue that, well, hang on, maybe this law only applies domestically, or, you know, uh, companies like Huawei will say no. But how are we supposed to believe that that's true? Uh, So, you know, I think, as you said, it's going to come down to an erosion of trust. If you were in the senior management of a company like Huawei, and you were looking at what's going on in Japan and Canada and the US and all these discussions, what would you do? I think the nuclear option is to offshore and move to China. <laughs> I don't think that that's actually a practical option, but yep. I think that is actually the, the best option they have available. There's also a number of steps they could take around transparency. The British option was to have a security evaluation centre that looked at Huawei products and tried mm. to evaluate them. And unfortunately, that never really worked. They've released oversight reports. They basically found it very, very difficult to get the kind of assurance they want. Part of that, it seems to me, is that the engineering practices just aren't as good as they need to be to reproducibly do things. Yeah. So they could actually just up their game and and get better at at doing that. But even if they did do that, uh, you know, things like the national intelligence law and things like, you know, being the ICT provider in the African Union headquarters and then the media reporting that for five years every night, data from the African Union was sent to servers in Shanghai. So even if, you know, they worked on those technical elements, how do you get around these other issues? Yeah, I think it's super tough. I think they've (laughs) got a real problem. Like I said, the the intelligence law crystallises all those fears. Mm. Once you have those fears, it's very hard to make them go away. Mm. I don't have any really good ideas. Tom, thanks for chatting with me. It's been a pleasure, Daniel. And now we finish with Maddie and Jackie looking at international news, the changing face of journalism and a little bit of positive news. Hey, it's Maddie. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to Jackie. Thank you for having me again, Maddie. Awesome. Let's dive right in. What are some long reads you've come across recently? I found a really interesting piece in The Atlantic on press freedom. This piece was written by Den Rather and Elliot Kirshner. They both have a media background and they run you through the history of journalism basically in the US and pinpoint to specifics, you know, the First Amendment. And actually, you find out by reading the piece why and how Fox News was created. Oh, wow. Um, Basically, um, some people felt there was bias in the reporting. So the conservatives established their own media outlet. Um, And he, but he also dives, uh, both of them actually dive a bit deeper into current issues that journalists are faced with nowadays and the entire media business, you know, like. We all have to accept that digitalization and technology have changed how journalism works nowadays. Absolutely. Like everyone can be a journalist these days. Exactly. Much. And people have changed where they get their news from. Mm. The majority of people go on social media and get their news. and Or they um, listen to awesome podcasts. Exactly. So the authors are basically advocating that we need to change our approach, that we need to be willing to pay free press comes with a price. Ah, um, interesting. And, yeah, to maintain a free press, um, we need to change our behaviour and yeah. expectations. So I think a lot of people would be on board with that idea until you ask them to actually fork up the cash. Yes, definitely. Yes. But they said, you know, some subscriptions and donations, there could be a first step mm. um, because what 
the paywalls and so on that haven't really worked out for a lot of uh, media outlets because people spread copy paste yeah, the news there's anyway. easy ways to get yeah. around it yeah so they said they don't really have a solution um but Good. they say it's an interesting development to see that um, individuals from corporate backgrounds start looking into the direction so you have Amazon and eBay. Oh, yeah. Um, know. Yeah, Jeff um, Bezos, is it, yeah. from Amazon? He yeah. bought Washington, Washington Post. Post. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we haven't seen yet whether that has a negative impact, Yeah. Okay. You know, whether they dictate what people need to write or whatsoever, yeah. but they said um, in their article that maybe that's the way forward. Oh, interesting. And that kind of reminds me of um, this is sort of this issue of freedom of fr- sorry, freedom of press has been in the news a bit recently in Australia. Um James Rickardson, he's um, an Australian filmmaker and he's actually on trial in Cambodia. He's been accused of spying for a foreign government and he faces up to 10 years in jail. Uh, He was arrested for flying a drone over a political rally in Phnom Penh. Yeah, he was actually arrested back, I think it was in 2017, but the story's been gaining a bit of traction recently because uh, the, the verdict of his trial is due any day now. So Um, And I think it just sort of ties in with, I think, that Atlantic piece that you mentioned. They specifically talk about sort of sustained attacks on press freedom from those in political power, the political elite. And I think it kind of like, yeah, it really sort of speaks to that sort of as as an issue that society is dealing with more broadly. Yeah, definitely. And you see that is happening in a lot of countries, you know, and every now and then you have a slight positive development. For example, if you look at Turkey, a German journalist was able to leave the country a couple of days ago after she was jailed for seven months last year, allegedly uh, spreading terrorism propaganda while actually only criticizing the um, government and doing her job by reporting. Um, And she was freed in December last year, but she finally was allowed to leave the country because she had been put under a travel ban. She said, however, that you know, not much has changed in the country, so she will continue to fight for her imprisoned colleagues. Let's move on to our international section, yeah? News this week has been very much dominated by domestic politics. I want to know what's happening in Venezuela because I was scrolling through my Facebook feed the other day and I saw this incredible video by Al Jazeera of Venezuelans lining up like hundreds of metres of lines to buy spoiled meat, like rotten meat. Like what is disgusting. What is happening in Venezuela? They're in the midst of an economic crisis. Yeah, so economic crisis that you mentioned has been going on actually for a couple of years. The economy has declined. They have a lot of issues despite sitting on the biggest oil reserves in the world. I found a really good article on that actually that gives a really mm-hmm. good introduction to the issue. Um, it's on an analysis on War on the Rocks written by Michael Dempsey. He looks at what is actually the underlying domestic issue, the political system in Venezuela and how that has allowed the elites to clinch onto power. The people are the ones that suffer from that. Mm. What is really interesting is he also looks at the impacts that has been um, felt throughout the entire region. So about around 2 million people from Venezuela have fled fled, to neighbouring countries. So that's putting a strain onto those economies. Um, At the same time, the international so-called friends of Venezuela have not been really helpful. So they they used to have really good relations with Cuba, but by now is really Cuba benefiting from energy um, transports from Venezuela to Cuba, but 
nothing comes mm. back in return. The same goes for China and Russia. Yeah. The analysis on War on the Rocks finishes with um, some recommendations for the uh, US government in particular, yeah, okay. how they can um, help with the humanitarian crisis that is currently developing in the region. Because um, of all the people that have fled. Exactly, mm. and um, how to better target the sanctions um, on individuals in the yeah, government okay. rather than the whole yeah. country. Well, I read that they brought in a new currency because it got to the point where one roll of toilet paper was like a million of their, I think it's Bolivars or the, yeah, their exactly. currency. There's um, The Deutsche Welle actually published some very incredible pictures where they put a piece of chicken next to how much people would have needed in cash. to pay for that. Oh, wow. Well, that's a bit depressing, isn't it? So let's move on to something positive. To, yeah, we always try to end on a high. So Maddie, please, some positive news. Well, positive news this week was that happy birthday to Katherine Johnson. She's the famous NASA mathematician um, and she celebrated her 100th birthday this week. Amazing. She's amazing. Like, I have to admit, um, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I'm one of those people who hadn't heard of Catherine until I watched the awesome film Hidden Figures. It's amazing. It was so incredible to like watch what she had to go through and yeah. you know, she's been such a good role model, not only what she's achieved as a woman, but especially as an African-American woman. As an African-American woman. woman. And I just kicked myself that I didn't know about her before because she is seriously incredible she calculated by hand the path that essentially put man on the moon it's just it's yeah amazing so and again we'll include some links for you all to read up on her amazing life and a big happy birthday to her yeah something positive well thanks for joining us again today and um jackie thanks for coming back always a pleasure pleasure. (laughs) awesome thanks for listening to policy guns and money we'll be back in two weeks